All right, you ready to continue our study in the book of the seven churches of Revelation, Bethel? I need to share with you that when we decided to dig into the letters of the seven churches this summer, I was at the same time both excited and wary of this summer series. Excited because these are very practical, relevant passages of Scripture. They address so many essential elements in the Christian life, and they are actually Jesus' own words to the churches. This is the only time in Scripture that we see Jesus actually speaking personally to complete established Christian congregations. And so there is much power in us hearing his voice directly to us. I was excited. I'm excited for this series, but I'm also wary because there are some hard-hitting truths in these letters. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. And sometimes he's very encouraging to these churches, but at other times he gives some very strong rebukes. And I've been wary of this series because I know that many of these rebukes are things we, I think, need to hear here at Bethel. And today's focus, Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, certainly contains both wonderful encouragement and a stinging rebuke. But before we get, dig into Jesus' words to the Ephesian church, I'd like to first present just a general overview of the basic structure that these seven letters to the churches follow. The, these letters, they all have a very similar structure. They very closely parallel one another. And really, they're not traditional letters per se. They are more like uh, messages or proclamations or oracles. In truth, they're, they're probably best uh, prophetic uh, declarations that Jesus is making over these seven churches. And here's how they all flow. They all begin first with just an identification of the church in focus. And so everyone begins, to the angel in the church in Ephesus, right, or to the angel in the church of Smyrna, right, etc. And commentators, of course, wonder and debate who these angels are at the very beginning. Are they literally guardian angels? Are they some important ruling official in the church? Perhaps the pervading spirit within the church? And Really, I don't know what's in view here when it speaks of the angels. It's one of those speculative, mysterious, revelation-type things that I don't think we're just going to really speculate and get into. But what's clear, however, is that every letter, it begins with an identification of the church that is currently in view. All these churches, they're located in Asia Minor, which is basically modern-day Turkey. We have a map up here. You kind of see where they're located. They're the churches with the little uh, red cross circle there. These are the seven churches that is addressed in these first few chapters of Revelation. And these are some of the earliest Christian churches to be established outside of the Jewish Holy Land or modern-day Israel. And after then this initial identification of the churches that are in view comes in the order of the letters, then a glorious description of the royal author of these prophetic messages, which is Christ. And in doing so, there's always a callback to the uh, picture of the resurrected, reigning, conquering king we find in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is saying at the beginning of each letter, don't forget who I am as I say these things to you. And after he declares some truth about himself, then he goes on to make an I know this about you kind of statement to the church. He issues a, a personal assessment He assesses the church's condition, both in the positive and sometimes in the negative. And so four churches of the seven get a both positive and negative evaluation. Two churches get a wholly positive evaluation, that's Smyrna and Philadelphia, and one church gets a wholly negative evaluation, that is the final church, the church of Laodicea. And essentially, Jesus gives each of these churches a report card about how they're doing. And then from this evaluation then flows commands and comfort to the church. So, for example, perhaps the church is facing some severe persecution, so Jesus comforts them with truth. Or perhaps the church is rebuked for being lukewarm, and Jesus exhorts them, commands them to be vibrant once again in their faith. 
So exhortations and encouragements, they follow Christ's assessment of the church. And next we see that these exhortations are for not just the church that's being addressed, it's for all people to heed. Every letter contains this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, everybody who has ears and can hear needs to listen to what is being said to each of these churches. Every church, all seven of these churches, need to pay attention to what's being said to the other churches as well. And that means that these messages are not just to the, all the seven churches, they're, to, they're also messages to us, to Bethel Church. And we need to hear and to heed what is being said. And then finally, in the structure, each message to the church concludes with a promise of blessing and of grace to the one who conquers. Remember, Revelation, it begins and ends with promises of blessing and grace and hope. Yes, there is great rebuke and judgment and wrath throughout the book of Revelation, but there is also tremendous promise and hope. And each letter concludes with a promised blessing and hope to each church if they do what Jesus commands. So that's the basic structure of each of the messages to the seven churches. And we're going to dig into the first one this morning, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And this is found beginning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. And it makes sense that the church in Ephesus would come first on the list. Ephesus was one of the most important churches in Asia Minor. It was a commercial hub in the region. They had a major port. Government officials were constantly passing in and out and through Ephesus. Ephesus also had one of the most important early churches. The Ephesian Ephesian church played a very important role in the establishment of Christianity. Paul passed through Ephesus several times in his missionary journey. Several key events in the book of Acts took place in Ephesus. And of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, only one has an entire book of the Bible devoted to it. The book of Ephesians, devoted to the church of Ephesus, which is what the church that's in view here this morning. So, so, so few early churches had more prominence in the biblical record than the church of Ephesus. It was one of the big ones. It was a leading church in this sense. And let's consider then how Jesus refers to himself at the start of, this, of, this, of his message to this church. He says uh, at the beginning there, To the angel in the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, we see now a direct callback to the picture of the glorious Christ in Revelation chapter 1. It's a picture of Jesus in his heavenly setting and in his resurrected glory, surrounded by golden lampstands, and in his hand are seven stars. And the lampstands and the seven stars, they're meant to represent the seven churches. And notice what Jesus is doing with these two things. He is holding them, and he is also walking amongst them. Which illustrates two things about Jesus' relationship to these churches. He holds them in his hand. He is utterly sovereign over them. He has total authority over them. But he is also walking among them. He is intimately present in their midst. Jesus is surrounded by these churches just as he surrounds them himself with his hand. And so you have a twofold relationship being emphasized here. Jesus reigns over the churches as a conquering king, and he holds them with with total authority in the palm of his hand. These churches, they are so incredibly small compared to the size and the glory and the grandeur of, of Christ. But Jesus is also among them as a kind and a relatable priest. He, he, he comes down to their level, to their size, and he relates to his people, and he fellowships with them. What a beautiful picture of Jesus. He's the supreme Lord and the reigning king, and he is also intimately present in their midst. And Jesus wants to remind the Ephesian church of this because 
it relates directly to the truth, to the encouragement, and also to the rebuke that he is about to give them. And we see that then moving on with the passage. First, he encourages them with positive commendations and words of approval. We see in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And what's going on here? Well, essentially, the Ephesian church is under some form of adversity, and they seem to be bearing up well under that adversity. They're persevering among some challenging circumstances, and Jesus says twice that they're showing patient endurance. They are enduring well. But what is it they're enduring? How are they under pressure? What kind of adversity are they facing? Verse 2 gives us the first indication when it says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. There's a moral evaluation going on here. We know that the people in the culture around Ephesus, they were living evil pagan lifestyles, as was true for all the cities in Asia Minor. Uh, There was rampant idolatry in Ephesus. The the city of Ephesus had the, the temple to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there was plenty of evil worship going on in the city, and surely Christians faced constant pressure to conform to this evil pagan worship. There also existed rampant hedonism of the day, and sexual morality, sexual freedom was just rampant. And also Ephesus was one of the most wealthy cities in the region, and so it was full of materialism and pride of wealth. The moral culture of Ephesus was debased, and that culture exerted pressure and adversity among the Ephesian Christians to conform, to conform and to live a hedonistic, self-indulgent, idolatrous lifestyle that was so common in Ephesus, a lifestyle that was evil. And the Ephesian church is, is commended for not succumbing to this. They fought the fight, and they were not giving in to the pagan idolatry that was so surrounding them, that was so provided them so much adversity. But aside from the moral adversity, there's another more prominent form of adversity in view, and that is doctrinal adversity. Jesus says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So here's what's going on. In the early church, as it was being established, doctrinal confusion and controversy was rampant. False teachers were everywhere in the church. And the epistles are filled with warnings to Christians to, uh, about false teachers. Early Christians are repeatedly exhorted to be on guard against such people to be discerning in their doctrine. In the Ephesian church, it wasn't immune to this pressure. There were false teachers in their midst, people who, who were claiming to have authority similar to Jesus' own apostles. And Paul himself, when he was visiting with the Ephesian church, said this, uh, predicting that this would happen during one of his visits. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Acts twenty twenty nine. And so here we see that the Ephesian church stood against this doctrinal adversity. They tested those who called themselves apostles and were not and found them to be false. They endured and bore up over doctrinal pressure and assault, and they discerned false teaching, and they rejected it. They maintained a a commitment to theological accuracy and rightness that was wholly commendable. In fact, it seems that they were quite zealous in their doctrine because they have not, at the end of verse 3, grown weary in this fight. The Ephesian church was a group of theologically astute people, and they knew it. They were probably well-known for their teaching ministry. Day after day, they rightly defended doctrine and stayed true to the teachings of Christ, regardless of the doctrinal pressures to conform or compromise that was brought against them from the culture within, without or from false teachers within. And Jesus commends them for this in verses 2 through 3. He also commends them for this in verse 6, when he says, "...you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." So the Ephesians church is doing something right here. 
There is a zealous commitment to theological purity and accuracy that, that is an essential element of every biblical church. And Jesus is saying to the Ephesian church, well done. Well done, Ephesian church. Keep that up. And I think if Jesus evaluated Bethel church on this factor, he might say something similar. Well done, Bethel church. You see, you don't need to be at Bethel very long to pick up on the fact that our church places a very high value on doctrine and on theological correctness. Doctrinal accuracy is very important to us. And we strive to see everything through the lenses of Scripture, don't we? As our church culture is one that carefully sifts truth from error as it's found in God's Word. I see this in our many Bible studies and small groups as people dig into God's Word and they engage in robust theological discussions. I see it in our teaching and preaching ministry as we deeply value expositional teaching. We try to teach exactly what the Bible says and we never try to say, and we never stray from that as best we can. I see people in our church face doctrinal and moral adversity from our culture. Our culture is constantly challenging the biblical values and truths we teach here on some moral matters like sexual purity or the biblical definition of marriage, practices like abortion and euthanasia, or idolatry of so many things, covetousness for material things, prideful accomplishments. I see people in our church standing against these things, not compromising our moral standards here. And our culture is also constantly challenging important doctrines as well, like the exclusivity of Christ. That is only through Jesus that people can be saved. Our culture scoffs at that. Or the justice and the holiness of God. Our culture declares that, that, that God is just some adorable, loving fuzzball. Rather than that, his spirit burns with the holy justice and that he will punish and punish wickedness in the world. Or the sovereignty of God in all things, that no matter how hard things get, in the end, Christ wins. That God's kingdom will prevail and that there is such a thing as absolute truth. And the Christianity, as it's described in the Bible, is absolutely true. No question. Make no mistake, our, our church is under constant doctrinal pressure and moral assault from our culture. Are we not? We are. And sometimes we're maligned and insulted because of the positions we take and the things that we teach. But we stand firm in this, don't we, Bethel? We stand firm. Imperfectly, for sure. Sometimes we're out there in the world and we don't defend the truth as we ought. But overall, it seems to me that we're like the Ephesian church in this regard. We love truth. We're wholly committed to theological accuracy. And to that, I would even personally say, well done, Bethel. Well done. And I think Jesus would have similar words for us as well, like he says to the church in Ephesus, keep enduring the pressure. Don't, don't grow weary of standing for what is true. Don't give in to evil. Don't tolerate false teaching. Bear up for truth, for my name's sake. Well done, Bethel. Well done. Now, I'd be delighted if I could just end the sermon there. We could all go home feeling good about ourselves and our church. But there's more to this passage, and what follows is much more difficult to hear, and it is actually very convicting. Because just as the first half of this message seems to describe Bethel very well, the second half, I think when you dig into it and rightly understand it, some other parallels between the Ephesian church and Bethel begin to emerge. So let me turn you then to verse 4, where Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And now it begins to sting a bit. 
Here's a rebuke to the Ephesian church and a very serious one. They have abandoned the love they had at first. They've abandoned a prior love, a love that had previously been central to their lives. They've fallen away from it. It has largely been forgotten. But what exactly is this love? The text doesn't clearly say. Love of what exactly? The passage is rather vague. The object of their love, it's not clearly defined. What is it they've stopped loving? One another? Their neighbors? Jesus himself? The scriptures? Their family? Good works? Evangelism? What is it? What has been the emphasis of the message to Ephesians thus far? The emphasis has been on truth. They're commended for being diligent and uncompromising in their commitment to moral and doctrinal truth. So we know that they love their theology. But it seems that perhaps they've stopped loving something else. Perhaps something connected to that theology. Perhaps they've stopped loving the person behind the theology. Biblically, the word love, especially in John's writings, is always interpersonal. The Bible doesn't talk about us loving concepts or things like love for pizza or fishing or some popular TV show. It speaks about us loving one another and loving God first and foremost. And after all, what are the greatest commandments? You shall love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is an interpersonal concept. And so for the Ephesians church, there's someone or someones that they have apparently ceased to love. I don't think the passage is talking about horizontal relationships within the church. The emphasis in the passage here doesn't have anything really to do with relationships between believers. It's just not there. Instead, the emphasis is on Christ and Christ's relationship with the church. Remember how it all begins. Jesus is the one who holds the churches in his hand. He's walking amongst them as the seven golden lampstands. The interpersonal emphasis of the the text here is on the relationship between the church and between Jesus. It all begins in verse 1. So it seems that the interpersonal love that they have lost is their love for Christ himself. But how can this be? I mean, in the previous verses, they were strongly commended for their devotion and their passion for theological accuracy. They were so affirmed in their zealous commitment to truth. How can they have that and yet be deficient in their love for Christ? Because loving Christ is much more than just having a certain belief in his person and his work. Did you get that? Loving Christ is much more than just having a certain belief in his person and his work. You see, what is love really? In general, we know that love, biblically, it's two things. It is first affection or positive feelings, emotions, a heart for something. Love is something we feel inside. And love is also an action and commitment. It is, it is a verb. It is expressed through actions. It's something that is lived out. And when the Bible speaks of love, it, it often involves both of these connotations. Love is a heart condition and affections, and it is also an action and commitment. And it seems that the Ephesian church has stopped loving Christ in this way, in an affectionate sort of way and in an action-oriented sort of way. They have all their theology down pat. They know the right doctrines. They can discern truth from error. They can argue with the best of them. They can uh, teach incredible lessons and have wonderful Bible studies. They can engage in, they have serious, strong convictions in their mind. But that pretty much sums up their Christian faith. It's an intellectual pursuit for them. It's a creed. It's a doctrinal statement that they affirm. It's not a loving relationship that they enjoy. There's not an affectionate connection to Christ. That motivates them to action. They have the right convictions in their head. But those head convictions have stopped somehow penetrating into their heart. I'd I'd liken the people of Ephesus to 
Perhaps department store mannequins. Let's think about mannequins for a moment. You know know what mannequins are. I've got a picture of a few here. We'll throw them on the screen. You've seen these. If you've gone to the mall, just weird-looking things kind of freak you out a little bit. They just kind of stand there staring at you, dressed all night. Have you been to Old Navy recently? The Old Navy mannequins are the creepiest things ever. Here's a, I got a picture of them. There they are. You see them? Walk in there, and I just want to turn around and leave, man. It's like these things, like, freak me out. And what is a, what is a mannequin, really? They're for ten people. They kind of have a great creepy look to them. And they affirm all the right styles. They have all the right pieces in place. They look like genuine people. They're incredible advocates for correct fashion. But they're not alive. There's no heart in them at all. They're just cold, lifeless statements of truth. This is what looks good. This is what fits good. But there's no life in them. There's no real relationships. They just stand there. They're just, they're just statements, really. This is what's true. This is what you should wear. This is what you should buy. This is what looks good. They proclaim truth. But there's no life in them whatsoever. And the Ephesian church is not unlike this. Loving Christ is so much more than just having a certain belief in his person and his work. Being a Christian is not just about having right convictions in our heads. That's part of it for sure. But there's more to it. Being a Christian involves having those head convictions penetrate deep into our hearts and then stoking within us a passionate affection for the truths we proclaim and those truths they should make us come alive. But what's happened in the Ephesian church is that their spiritual passion and that their spiritual affections have grown stale. They're like dead mannequins in a department store. They continue to affirm and stand for truth because that's who they are. That's their identity. They're all about truth rather than the person behind the truth. And their head convictions have failed to produce heart affections. There's no, there's no fire in their bones for the object of their theology, namely Christ. Jesus is an intellectual proposition for them to affirm, not a, not a person to love. He's a person to talk about, not someone to speak with. He's an object to discuss rather than a person to delight in. He's a benefactor to them, someone who gives them something that they want rather than a person, an individual whom they adore and they fall down in amazement and worship. Jesus is a source of interest and curiosity to them rather than a person who gives them so much joy and happiness and excitement and comfort. And when they think of Jesus, their hearts fill up with pride for what they know about him rather than filling up with a yearning and a longing to relate to him and to know him and to be with him. Their joy in their personal relationship with Christ has dried up. Their yearning and zeal to relate to him has withered. They talk about Jesus as an object of theology all day long before they would talk to him in prayer. They defend the exclusivity of Christ or unpack for you the five accomplishments of the atonement before they would ever weep for joy because of the amazing reality that they are intimately known and loved by a God of the universe whom holds the entire span of existence in the palm of his hand. They're window-dressing people, setting up nice displays of theology and truth, making everything so presentable and nice. But they themselves are like cold, dull-hearted mannequins. There's no fire in their bones. 
for the people, the person they claim to worship. And what about us, Bethel? What about you? What about me? If I can be honest for a moment, I think we do struggle with this in some way. I know I struggle with this. I've had to repent some this week as I've prepared this message because my inclination has been often to approach my faith more with an intellectual frame than a relational one. And the truth is, most established churches, many established Christians, certainly lots of seasoned Christian leaders struggle with this. Why? Because this is the nature of the human heart. The nature of the human heart is for our passions to grow stale. And we lose interest. It's just who we are. You see that in every area of life. Think about some hobbies or interests you've had. We've all had hobbies and interests that we used to just be so excited for and zealous for. But then over time, they just kind of fade away and we move on to something else. Initial excitement, after a while, it just wanes. We see this in marriage. As husbands and wives, over time, sometimes grow emotionally distant. They lose the love, the passion they had for one another at first. And we see it in our relationship with Christ. As the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The human heart is easily tempted to love other things. And that is exactly what has happened here at Emphasis. And that certainly does happen some here at Bethel Church. Sometimes the head convictions cease to produce the heart affections. And that is why Jesus calls them back to remember the vibrancy of the faith that they once had. In verse 5, look at that when he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. In other words, remember how you were as a new convert. Remember what it was like when you first tasted of the grace of God for the very first time. Remember what it was like when you first discovered how very much Christ loves you and how much he served and sacrificed for you. Remember that passionate, zealous love you once had, then repent. Get that, work to get that affectionate love back again. So how do we, how do, we do that, Bethel? So some of you right now are saying, well, that's unrealistic because I'm just not an emotional guy. I just don't feel things like that. I can't manufacture that passion. I can't just, like, will myself to be affectionate. And you're somewhat correct on those objections. This is not just something that you can walk out of here, out those doors, and then be like, mm, yes, I'm going to love Christ now. You can't just, like, flip on that passion switch in your heart. But you're also not considering the fact that how we think does have a dramatic impact on how we feel. Because here's this important principle. I've been saying that head convictions produce heart affections. And when we think about things that are wonderful and attractive and desirable, that thinking always stokes within us a passion for those things. And typically, the more and more you think about things that are wonderful and desirable, the more and more you become affectionate for it. I don't care if it's golf or the White Sox, the Bears, the Cubs, your vacation plans, your kids, Zumba class, you name it. Things that you dwell on, your head convictions, it will produce heart affections if you dwell on them. And all too often... What Christians do, though, is they affirm the glorious truth of God or the gospel, and they place those truths then up on a shelf. And it's there as a reference for them when they need it. It's a comfort to grab when they get distressed or worried. And for the most part, that truth then is kept at a theological arm's reach. 
It's accessed only when needed. Our knowledge of God becomes like a reference book that we take down only when we have, a, have to solve a problem. And if that's you and that's how you approach the things of God, then you bet your heart is going to be stale. Instead, what needs to happen is the truth of our faith needs to marinate in our mind. It needs to be something that we intentionally dwell on and and consider for long stretches of time. Daily, hourly, hourly we must call to our mind the rich truths of our faith, thinking about how glorious they are, dwelling on their majesty. And when you do that, that will impact your heart. It will, it must, because the glories of God are too great. We cannot help but get excited when we really consider them of, of, of just how our God is so absolutely amazing and Jesus Christ is totally astounding. The promises of the gospel are the most joyful promises and the rewards of God's kingdom, the most exciting things imaginable. And if only we would take time to really dwell on these things, to consider them for all of their richness and their glory. Instead of just putting them on a shelf. After we consider them for an hour here at church. So let me take a moment to remind you, then, just how glorious Christ is. When you think of Jesus Christ, do you think of him in all of his power? That He is full of ultimate power. The foundations of the world were made through Christ. He can do all things. He's all powerful. With the word, he can command a legion of angels. And with a thought, he can cause anything he wants to come into existence or go out of existence. He has glorious, unmatched power. What about his wisdom? If all the knowledge of man was written down in books and all collected in one place, that collection of books would just be like a matchbox in the size of his hand. Jesus Christ knows everything. He knows all of our thoughts, our actions and deeds. He knows what we do when no one's watching. He knows the correct path to proceed through any circumstance. In Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. His wisdom is unsearchable. Do you think about that? Do you think about Christ's sovereignty? That he has authority and power and dominion over all things. And not one bird in the jungles of Africa falls dead without a sovereign decree. Not one hair on my head comes out without his knowledge. He's absolutely sovereign. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He is sovereign over all creation. All creation is his. This church, this city, this country, this world, you, me, we are all his and his alone. Jesus Christ alone is king. He is Lord and he is sovereign. We need to think about his truthfulness, that there is nothing false in him. In him lies all goodness and truth and sincerity and genuineness. There's no possibility of sin in him. He is wholly true and he is not just true. He is the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says. No one comes to the Father but through me. No person is more authentic and truthful than Jesus. We also need to consider Christ's wrath. Jesus Christ hates sin. He will not stand for it. It will not do. He is wrathful against it. We must think of his response when he walked into the temple and he saw the money changers and merchants and was filled with wrath and righteous indignation. And he made a whip and turned the tables over. And he said, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? And then we see him later in the book of Revelation when he treads the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, crushing his enemies beneath his feet. We must think of his wrath. We must not 
ignore it. Just as we also think of his mercy and his grace. His amazing grace. Merited favor, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His grace knows no end. It is boundless. It is endless. And though we sin, he gives us grace and more grace and grace upon grace. Amazing mercy. What about Christ's endurance? His endurance. Have you ever had a nail driven through your wrist? Or spike pounded through your feet. Or thorny crown pressed upon your brow until blood trickled down. Or been beaten and mocked and scorned and spat upon by people you love who you're suffering to save. What endurance. To endure the cross. That being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. He endured death. He endured even death on a cross. What about Christ's faithfulness? Jesus Christ is always faithful. He is always true to his promises. He's always dependable. He's always reliable. He will, not, he will never violate his word. Not one promise in this book will he fail to keep. He will never let you down. He cannot err. He is always true to his word. And of course, his love. What great love. Indescribable love. Unquenchable love. Love, love that is so great that we cannot even begin to comprehend it. But oh, how it is demonstrated. Demonstrated in his healings, in his compassion, his care for people. Demonstrated as he wept over Lazarus' death. Demonstrated by the care and attentiveness he showed to Mary and Martha. Demonstrated as he invited little children to come and sit on his lap. And on the cross, the cross. Oh, how great and deep, deep, deep is the love of Christ that we would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And finally, consider Jesus in his holiness that he is set apart, that nothing in creation is like him, as described in. The book of Revelation, chapter 19, we see Jesus like this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now when you hear Jesus described in those ways, what happens in your heart? What does that truth do to your heart? I hope it begins to beat a little bit faster. I hope it creates within you an excitement and a joy and a wonder and amazement and worship. Truth like that should make you come alive. It should create a fire in your bones so that you have an affection and a yearning for Christ. Not just a mental agreement whereby you say, yes, that's who Jesus is. And and then you keep the truth of Jesus at a theological arm's reach. 
rather than experiencing a deep, abiding, affectionate love for him. Because there is no greater object of our affection than Jesus. He must have the first place in our hearts. He must be our first love. And the way you make that happen is to allow your head convictions to stoke within you heart affections. And you don't need me or any other pastor to help you do this. It's all right here in God's written word. The revelation of God as it is studied and applied and allowed to marinate in our mind should cause us to more deeply and earnestly fall in love with him as we learn and as we see and as we're reminded just more and more just how glorious he is. The Ephesian church needed to repent of their cold, stale hearts, of how their Christianity was just window dressings of truth. They needed to repent to the dull mannequins they had become and become people with a vibrant, heartfelt, deeply passionate love affair with Christ. A sign of Christian maturity is incredible joy and a passion for God. And the Ephesian church needed more heart. And I would respectfully challenge us here at Bethel. We need more heart for Jesus as well. That the truths we teach need to marinate more in our minds and then penetrate deep into our hearts to stir up within us joyful, passionate affections for our Lord. Our truth is not just something we agree to and put on the shelf. It needs to deeply impact our hearts. You do that as you read God's word, as you memorize scripture, as you talk about truth, as you dwell on truth. Here's this one practical tip I can give you that I've done in my life. I find something that I do so frequently all throughout the day, whether it's checking my email or looking at the clock or looking at my phone. And I train myself through discipline. Every time I do that action, I'm going to intentionally call to mind a glory of Christ. In that one moment, just, just for a moment, worship him for that. You would just set an alarm on your phone to ring every 15 minutes, just buzz you. and That'd be a reminder to have your mind continually attuned to the glories of God and the gospel that will within your heart stoke an affection that you will not be able to deny. But the Christian life doesn't just stop there. There's something else important that's said here to the Ephesian church. Look again at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Love is two things, remember. It is affection, and it is also an action and a commitment. Here Jesus is challenging them to do righteous works that are in keeping with the affections that they need to renew. And this just seems natural that this would be so, right? I mean, what happens when you're truly affectionate for something? It produces actions. When you love someone with a deep and earnest affection, you cannot help but respond in word and in deed to the love you have. So if you have, for example, a deep, earnest, passionate affection for Twinkies. Okay? Take Twinkies. Actually... This is calling back to an event that happened here at the church this week. I think we have a picture I'll put up here. This is an image, this is an image from staff meeting this week that Pastor Jacob Netherton took of me and immediately decided to post on Facebook. <laughs> I've understood it's gone viral. <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. But you see, if you have a deep, earnest, passionate affection for Twinkies, you know what? Your life is going to reflect that. You're going to eat Twinkies. You're going to go out and go on a tour of a Twinkie factory. You're going to make sure they're always in your home. And when you hear the news that, you know what, Twinkies are going out of production, 
You go crazy and you stop up, stock your entire pantry with as many Twinkies as you can. Because for crying out loud, they got a shelf life of 18 and a half years. <laughs> your affections for Twinkies produce Twinkie-oriented actions. And if your heart is earnestly in love with Christ, it's going to produce good works in Christ's name. You're going to have a vibrant prayer life. You're going to be deeply connected to the fellowship of the people of God. You're going to use your gifts to serve people and help make ministry happen around here. You're going to be free with your resources and your money towards God's kingdom. You're going to evangelize. You're going to share Christ with the people around you. Why? Because you love Christ. Because your heart motivates you to action. Because your affections cause for him, they cause you to do something with your hands, with your life. You won't be able to stop yourself from living for Christ more and for telling others more about him. And personally, I think this evangelistic piece is very much in view in this text. Remember the seven churches that are described as lights on a stand, stars casting light. The churches are beacons of light that display the truth that they hold dear. And it seems that the Ephesian church used to be a vibrant witness, boldly proclaiming the truth that they loved to the world around them. But as their affection for Jesus waned, so did their witness for him. And Jesus threatens to remove their opportunity to witness when he says in verse 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you don't love me, you're not going to be a good witness for me, so I'm just going to take away that opportunity to begin with. And given their cold hearts, it makes sense then that the Ephesian church would have little evangelistic effort. If you don't love Christ, you're not going to be talking about him very much. But if you love Christ deeply, You'll be compelled to tell the people all around you about him. You won't be able to help yourself because you love Christ so very much and you'll just, your life will just explode with testimony about Jesus. You won't be able to keep it in because he is so very precious to you. And this then is the full picture about how our theology and our affections and our actions all intersect. Head convictions produce heart affections and heart affections yield hand expressions. And you know this to be true, right? When your knowledge about something that is desirable and wonderful makes you excited for it, that then causes you to act. Head convictions produce heart affections, which then yield hand expressions. And here's sometimes where we get the Christian life backwards. We know we're supposed to live in a certain way. We know we ought to pray more, read our Bible, serve in the church, evangelize our neighbors and coworkers. But we often struggle to do so. And we feel defeated and we wonder... Why can't I make this happen in my life? Why do I struggle to be obedient and pure in this way? Why, 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 why can't I share Christ with people? Why do I have such a hard time praying? Why do I resent giving money to the church? I'll tell you why. It's because you've tried to bypass the heart. You're trying to do things out of a sense of duty and obligation and discipline rather than a real passion for the truth that you love. Therefore, those actions, they just feel like jobs you have to do rather than a joy that is a privilege you get to do. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes our heart's not in it. And if a heart is dull, that's not an excuse to slack off and compromise on our faith just because you're not excited to serve in the kids' ministry this weekend or send in your tithe this month or share Christ with your neighbor or be faithful to your spouse. That lack of excitement is not a good reason for you to put those commitments aside. aside. Even if we're not excited for them, we must still perform the duties of our faith. But how much more rewarding is it? And how much less of a struggle? When those duties become a delight. And, and, and what feels like a job becomes a joy. And how does that happen? 
It happens when you have a deep-seated heart for Christ. You see, we live for what we cherish. We cherish Christ more, and it will be easier and easier for you to live for Him because your heart affections and your hand expressions just produce that. But if you keep Christ at a theological arm's reach, and all you'll have is a life that is a, it's just window dressings of truth. You'll be nothing more than a dull mannequin struggling to look alive. But I have a heart affection for Christ and those hand expressions, they will necessarily follow. You won't be able to help yourself. And cultivating a heart like this is a battle for sure. Look at how the letter to Ephesus concludes. Jesus says in verse 7, he says to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is the paradise of God. And here we have a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. This is the promise to all those who truly love Christ. And notice the nature of the promise. It involves feasting on delicious fruit from a life-giving tree and being in paradise with God. These are both incredibly joyful things. And what a fitting conclusion. What a wonderful promise. Because there is no greater joy than having Christ as your first love. So pursue a deep love for Christ and these rich rewards of joy will follow. So let's pursue a deep, affectionate love for him, Bethel. It is worth it. Snoppy people are just all about theological displays. That's just window dressing. Let's get some heart. Let's get some fire in our bones. To get that, all you have to do is behold him. To see and savor more of who he is. To let the glorious truths of our faith marinate more and more in our minds. And as that happens, your life will be transformed. And you won't be able to help yourself from living holy. With that, let's go to prayer.